Hello, and welcome to the Great War Podcast, an in-depth look at the origins, battles, and consequences of the First World War. Episode 80, The Kerensky Offensive. Hello everyone, and welcome back. Last episode, we discussed the Battle of Messines Ridge, which was the first stage of the British campaign in Flanders. The attack on Messines demonstrated the BEF was perfecting bite-and-hold operations. By nightfall on June 7th, the ridge was back under British control. The battle for Flanders was just getting started, but chronology dictates we must depart the Western Front and return to the East. Russia's provisional government was about to undertake an offensive of their own, which would have wide ramifications for the remainder of the war. When Tsar Nicholas II, last of the Romanov emperors, abdicated the throne in March 1917, the future of Russia's war was cast into uncertainty. Two centuries of autocratic rule had come to an end, and for a hot minute, it looked as though a democratic Russia would take root. For the British, French, and Americans, the end of Tsarist autocracy presented a two-sided problem. It removed one of the world's most restrictive regimes, a small victory for these self-proclaimed liberty-loving allies. The United States was the first country to formally recognize the new regime, followed by Britain, France, and Italy two days later. However, the Tsar's departure also meant they had lost a dependable ally. Despite his exhaustive list of faults, Nicholas never wavered in his commitment to the Allied cause. Of course, that unwavering commitment was part of the problem. Eager to hold up his end of the agreement, Nicholas ignored, overlooked, and mishandled about every domestic issue he faced, while a revolving door of ministers eroded the final remnants of his regime's credibility. Everything came to a head in the winter of 1917. The March Revolution, or February Revolution as it's stated in the old Russian calendar, was the public's summative expression of despair and exhaustion. Cold and hungry urbanites took to the streets, while city garrisons mutinied against their officers. On March 15th, Tsar Nicholas abdicated the throne, and a provisional government was established. Now, the provisional government was exactly that, provisional, a temporary administration until a permanent solution could be found. Despite this, the provisional government took steps to liberalize Russia. It introduced adult universal suffrage, freedom of the press and speech, abolished the death penalty, and removed all legal restrictions on religion, class, and race. As impressive as this was, the provisional government could not ignore the fact that there was still a war on, and not only did it have the Germans, Austro-Hungarians, Ottomans, and Bulgarians to consider, it also had a plethora of domestic issues to contend with. What to do with the Tsar? What to do with popular discontent? What to do with the war? You know, big questions without easy answers. It also had the Soviets to contend with. You'll recall from episode 73, that the Soviets were councils of workers and soldiers, established to protect revolutionary values. Soviets first appeared back in 1905, but really came to prominence during the March Revolution, first among them being the Petrograd Soviet. The Soviet and provisional government vied with one another for power almost from the get-go. As outlined in Order No. 1, the government could not order the military without the Soviets' consent. Likewise, the Soviets required the government for legitimacy. Thus, these two agents of government were forced into a marriage of convenience, and operated on a system of compromise and mutual bargaining. 
One example of this compromise was when the Soviet agreed to let Alexander Kerensky join the government on May the 15th. Kerensky was appointed Minister of War, making him the only member of both organizations. Kerensky would provide a crucial link between the two. A fiery orator, Alexander Kerensky began his political career as a lawyer and moderate reformer, pushing for land reform on behalf of urban workers and disgruntled peasants. A vocal critic of the aristocracy, Kerensky initially opposed Russia's entry in 1914, not because he was a pacifist, but because he knew Russia would be ruined without meaningful reform. However, Kerensky's opinion on the war had changed by 1917. While he welcomed the Tsar's abdication, he now saw the war as necessary to protect the revolution. He believed Russia's liberty would only flourish once its enemies, both internal and external, were defeated. If this all sounds highly romantic, it's because it was. Kerensky was an ardent idealist, who believed the army would automatically forget the past three years and fight tooth and nail to defend the revolution. But as one senior officer recalled, quote, Neither public opinion, nor the press, nor the governments of our allies understood the danger which threatened the retention by the Russian armies of their fighting capabilities, under the conditions of an internal revolutionary movement. End quote. Alexander Kerensky woefully misjudged the situation, but it is worth noting that he was not alone in his beliefs. Kerensky received plenty of encouragement from British, French, and American delegates who visited Russia that spring. For example, American diplomat L.U. Root, a former Secretary of War, Senator, and Nobel Prize winner, told Kerensky that Russia must fight to protect its freedom, saying, quote, The triumph of German arms would mean the end of Russian liberty. End quote. Spurred on by his allies, Kerensky turned his attention to reorganizing the Russian army. While some Tsarist officers were removed from their posts, the provisional government did not undergo any systemic purges in the ranks, at least not a comparison to what would happen in the following decades. Most senior officers were quick to offer their services, and those who refused were considered too old and or too incompetent to be of concern. One notable exception to this was Commander-in-Chief Mikhail Alexeyev, who was one of the final Tsarist officers to voice their support. Alexeyev worked with Kerensky to prop up the new regime during its early days. However, Alexeyev was unceremoniously dismissed in early June, replaced by Alexei Brusilov. Before we go much further, it is important to note that the upcoming Kerensky Offensive slash Second Brusilov Offensive slash July Offensive, depending on the nomenclature, was devoid of any clear strategic objectives. Although the Duma and Soviet gave their consent in mid-June, Brusilov only had two weeks to pull things together. Essentially, the offensive was expected to demonstrate three things, none of which can be clearly quantified. First, to show the provisional government could deliver a military victory. Two, to improve Russia's place at the post-war table. And three, to prove Russia's commitment to the Allied cause. Exactly how these objectives would be measured was left totally ambiguous. Kerensky assumed that success would breed success, and that a triumphant campaign would reset the national mojo. Except, none of the real issues that led to the revolution in the first place had been meaningfully addressed. Soldiers still lacked food, weapons, ammunition, and proper clothing. Inflation had made paper currency practically useless. 
There was an attempt to run an American-style Liberty Loan program, but that ended in spectacular failure. The problems Russia faced ran much deeper than what happened on the battlefield. The population was fed up. They wanted the war ended, and they wanted it ended yesterday. To help illustrate this, Kerensky inherited an army which saw 170,000 desertions since the Tsar's abdication. Fraternization was also on the rise. Despite repeated warnings from Brusilov, Kerensky insisted the army would be ready for battle. To put heart into the army's least willing units, Kerensky underwent an extensive speaking tour of the front. He delivered rousing patriotic speeches and shook hands with everyone he came across. Newspapers covered each step, and it was not long before the Austrians and Germans knew the Russians were cooking something up. It would be hard to miss, after all. To quote one of his speeches, quote, You are the freest soldiers in the world. Must you not show the world that the system on which this army is based is now the best system? Our army under the monarchy accomplished heroic deeds. Will it be a flock of sheep under a republic? I summon you forward to struggle for freedom, not to a feast, but to death. We revolutionaries have a right to death. Another quote reads, The time has now come when everyone in the depth of his conscience must reflect where he is going and where he is leading others who are held in ignorance by the old regime, and still regard every printed word as law. The fate of the country is in your hands, and it is in most extreme danger. History must be able to say of us, they died, but they were never slaves. End quote. Kerensky certainly put his oratory skills to good use. By all accounts, he commanded his audience like a conductor would a symphony, whipping them into a patriotic fervor. Problem was, once the show ended and Kerensky got on his way, many of the men reverted back to desperation and despair. Brusilov, who witnessed many of these speeches, wrote the following. Quote, the rank and file welcomed him enthusiastically, promised him everything he could have wanted, and then broke every one of their promises. End quote. It is not hard to empathize with the soldiers' anathema. For years, they had been told the Tsar's authority was absolute, immutable, and divinely ordained. Now, the Tsar was gone, ousted by regular men of flesh and blood. While it is true that the Russian population was largely illiterate, that did not make them stupid. As Prit Batar observes in his book, The Splintered Empires, the change in government shattered 200 years of status quo. Like the prisoner of Plato's cave, they were suddenly cast into a new reality. If everything they had been told about the Tsar was false, then why should they believe whatever Kerensky was trying to sell them? They were being told to fight, but for what exactly? For many, it was meet the new boss, same as the old boss. To be clear, Kerensky had himself to blame here. In an effort to appease the Soviet, the provisional government passed the Declaration of Soldiers' Rights on May the 28th. The Declaration of Soldiers' Rights called for the democratic reorganization of military command, including the appointment of commissars to represent Soviet interests. The declaration also abolished saluting and gave soldiers political, religious, and national freedoms. To quote the declaration, the discipline of the revolutionary army will exist through popular enthusiasm and thorough awareness of duty to a free country, and not through compulsory salutes, end quote. In other words, the Declaration of Soldiers' Rights rendered military protocol, well, optional to say the least. Kerensky hoped that by loosening convention, men would be more willing to fight. 
except it had the opposite effect. With no checks to maintain discipline, soldiers deserted, fraternized, and simply sat around ignoring their officers. In an atmosphere full of animosity and uncertainty, Brusilov did as best as he could to prepare the army. The Kerensky Offensive was an almost carbon copy of Brusilov's successful 1916 campaign. The Russians would again attack in Galicia, across a 200-kilometer front which stretched from the fortress of Brody to the Dniester River in Ukraine. The terrain was relatively flat, dotted with villages, rivers, and streams. The Russians had three army groups stationed in Galicia. You had the 11th Army in the north, 7th Army in the west, and Brusilov's old 8th Army in the south. The 11th and 7th Armies would lead the attack beginning on July 1st. 8th Army would be held in reserve until July 8th, when it would make diversionary attacks along the Carpathian foothills. Brusilov packed an impressive 31 divisions into a 65-kilometer zone. The bulk of this army was aimed at three Austro-Hungarian formations. Just as they were in 1916, Brusilov believed the Habsburgs would be easy targets, and he was correct. To an extent. By 1917, the Austro-Hungarians had indeed gone through a reckoning. The losses of 1916 had forced Vienna to swallow its pride and accept more German control over its armed forces. Konrad von Hutzendorf was finally let go in March, which opened the door for German infantry and officers being incorporated into the Habsburg ranks, along with German weapons, training, and equipment. While this change did not improve Austro-Hungarian morale overnight, it did mean that the Russians would be fighting more German troops than they had in 1916, something which they had been keen to avoid since the harsh lessons of 1914-1915. Using his established formula, Brusilov organized to launch three consecutive attacks across the entire front. The primary objective was to secure the fortress of Lemberg, modern-day Laville in Ukraine, which had been under German occupation since 1915. Brusilov believed that retaking the city would provide an important staging area for future attacks, while also threatening the regional oil fields. Problem was, Lemberg was 93 kilometers away. The attackers would have to advance further than they had in 1916. Brusilov had another problem, one which guaranteed the upcoming offensive would be a one-and-done. The number of reserves had fallen precipitously since the previous year. Brusilov had only 60,000 men in reserve, compared to 200,000 in 1916. Without adequate reserves, there was no hope of maintaining momentum beyond the initial advance. Even if the Russians possessed the greatest general in human history, the Kerensky offensive was not going anywhere. The preliminary bombardment began on June the 29th. For two days, 1,328 guns pounded the Habsburg positions. But before we get too far ahead of ourselves, it is worth pointing out the demographic makeup of Brusilov's army. While this was a Russian offensive, the army that went into battle was a microcosm of the Allied cause, consisting of Serbian and Finnish infantry, Polish cavalry, a Belgian armored car division, French and British aviators, artillery advisors, and various Red Cross teams. Of the units that went into action, one deserves special recognition the Czechoslovak Legion. The Czechoslovak Legion was strategically placed opposite the Austro-Hungarian Second Army, which itself had two predominantly Czech formations, 
the 35th and 75th Infantry Regiments. When the Russian advance got underway on July 1st, the Czechoslovak legionnaires routed the Habsburg formations and punched a hole in the front line. The Habsburg Czechs had no desire to fight their brethren and tossed their rifles in protest or surrendered on the spot. Some even joined the Russian ranks, which sent alarm bells ringing in Vienna. For the beleaguered Habsburg commanders, this was an ominous sign of what was to come. Additionally, the Kerensky Offensive also saw the deployment of a women's combat battalion, the ominously named Women's Battalion of Death. The Women's Battalion of Death was formed at the behest of Maria Botchkovia, a tough peasant woman from Siberia who received permission to enlist after writing a letter to the Tsar. Botchkovia's story is worthy of its own episode, so we'll be covering it in a short supplemental in the near future. For a fleeting moment, it looked as though the Russians were about to deal the Austro-Hungarians a substantial blow. Obscured by smoke, attacking troops left their trenches on July 1st and stormed the enemy posts. The Russians' greatest success occurred in the sector of the 11th Army, where 6th Corps managed to force a considerable gap between the overstretched Austro-Hungarian 2nd and 3rd Armies. Russian infantry captured the village of Konyuki before encountering German and Austrian reinforcements. Fighting continued on the outskirts of the village until the dust, smoke, and midday heat made conditions unbearable. However, the Russians remained in control of Konyuki, which was welcome news to Kerensky. Emboldened by these early returns, Kerensky immediately dispatched the following message to Petrograd, writing, quote, Today has furnished the reply once and for all to all the malicious and slanderous attacks on the organization of the Russian army, based on democratic principles. End quote. Elsewhere, Russian infantry crossed the Dniester and Lamaka rivers and secured a number of strong points along the way. Over 10,000 Habsburg prisoners were taken, along with 93 artillery pieces and 400 machine guns. The Russian advance had taken them halfway to Lemberg. But as we established, Brusilov never had the reserves to maintain momentum. While the opening days demonstrated the Russian army could still fight, the offensive began to stall out as casualties mounted. By the morning of July 3rd, German and Austro-Hungarian aircraft had reclaimed the skies, and were able to track the Russian axis of attack. To check the advance, Ludendorff redeployed 11 German divisions from France, and 3 Austro-Hungarian divisions from Italy. The Central Powers launched their counterattacks on July 19th, which methodically pushed the Russians back. The First Guards Corps took heavy losses, and the entire front near total collapse. The combined force pushed the Russians back 24 kilometers in five days. The Austro-Germans occupied Tarnopol on July 25th, capping off their successful march. As Nick Cornish writes, the effect on the Russians was like knocking down a row of dominoes, with each retreating force bumping into the next. While 7th and 11th armies descended into chaos, Kornilov's 8th army managed to hold the line. Kornilov's forces maintained a pragmatic retreat and inflicted significant losses on the Austro-German formations. However, 8th army's admirable exploits would not be enough. Within two weeks, the Austro-German counteroffensive had pushed the Russians back 
112 kilometers, an unprecedented distance even for the Eastern Front. The gains made by Brusilov in 1916 were all but wiped out. The Kerensky Offensive was Russia's final push in their Great War. It was also an objective failure. Some 400,000 Russians were killed, wounded, captured, or deserted their posts and vanished into the countryside. Kerensky's effort to reinvigorate the country sent it further down the road to revolution. Brusilov was dismissed on July 30th, an abrupt end to the career of Russia's most successful general. Brusilov was then replaced by Kornilov, the 8th Army commander whose reputation soared after the offensive. Lavur Kornilov was a unique choice for the role of commander-in-chief. He was certainly not without his accomplishments. He spoke several languages and was a charismatic son of a lowly Siberian Cossack. Those who served with Kornilov described him as a fighting general who carried fighting men with him by his courage, coolness, and contempt for death. Professionally speaking, Kornilov's resume made him worthy of consideration. Except Kornilov was the opposite of everything the provisional government stood for. He was a harsh disciplinarian who supported the return of capital punishment for soldiers who deserted or refused to fight. He was also keenly aware that Russia's problems were not surface level. Like Brusilov and Kerensky, Kornilov was fiercely anti-Bolshevik, and believed Bolshevik agitators were to blame for the army's failure. After all, the Bolsheviks were the only party calling for the immediate end to the war, which was an appetizing message for the war-weary populace. Speaking of the Bolsheviks, the Bolsheviks had also become government enemy number one. As the Kerensky offensive fell apart at the seams, a group of militant rebels attempted to overthrow the provisional government on July 15th. Led by men of the 1st Machine Gun Regiment, huge crowds of sailors, workers, and soldiers took to the streets of Petrograd. Whether the demonstrators were actual members of the Bolshevik party remains a scholarly debate but some of the more extreme Bolshevik leaders sought to use the demonstration to seize control from the government. Lenin and Trotsky, however, disagreed, and pulled their support at the last minute. Government troops and police eventually cleared the streets after three days. Lenin fled the country, and Trotsky was temporarily imprisoned. While this event did not bring about the government's collapse, it is a good example of how volatile the political situation was and it was about to get much more difficult. After the attempted coup, Kerensky was appointed prime minister, and enacted policies aimed at restoring public discipline. While Kerensky dealt with issues on the domestic side, Kornilov focused on the army. Both men wanted to end any signs of counter-revolution, particularly in regard to the Bolsheviks. These overlapping goals should have made them natural allies, except it led to one of the more tragic, if not comedic misunderstandings in history, the Kornilov Affair. We'll be discussing the Kornilov Affair next episode, but I think we've covered enough for today, so that's it for this week. As always, be sure to check out our website, thegreatwarpodcast.podbean.com. There you can find a list of sources and contact information if you wish to get in touch with me. Listener feedback is greatly appreciated, so if you have any questions or comments, you can reach the show on Twitter, at Great War Podcast, or through email, thegreatwarpodcast at outlook.com. That again is at Great War Podcast on Twitter, or thegreatwarpodcast at outlook.com. 
This has been episode 80 of the Great War Podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you again shortly.